Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Thank you for joining me during this cold, cold February for episode number 12 of the podcast. I would like to start out today with a thank you to our newest Patreon patron, Bethany, who started supporting the podcast at the $5 Hardcore Battlefield Reenactor level. We will hear from her later in the show as she had a question for today's guest. If you would like to get more involved in supporting the show and perhaps submit your own question to a future guest, visit the show's Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash cmtuhistory. My guest today is Dr. Bradley W. Hart. Bradley is an assistant professor at California State University, Fresno, where he teaches the history of journalism and Jewish studies. He completed his Ph.D. in history at Cambridge University under the supervision of the historian Sir Richard J. Evans, who some listeners may know from his seminal trilogy on the Third Reich. Bradley has written on global economics and politics in the early 20th century, as well as on Nazi Germany. Bradley joins me from California via Skype to talk about his new book, Hitler's American Friends, The Third Reich Supporters in the United States. Some of the things we cover in today's episode are groups in America that were sympathetic to the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe, the prominence of anti-Semitism in mass media, and the role of the isolationist America First Committee in trying to keep the United States from entering World War II. Now let's get to it. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school Bradley Hart, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Doing very well, thanks. Good. Well, uh, you wrote a very interesting book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and your past work before we dive into this book. Sure. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Fresno. Prior to that, I did my undergrad at California State University, Fresno, before going off to graduate school in the United Kingdom. I did my MLIT at the University of St. Andrews, where I also played some golf, as you might imagine. Uh, And then I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge. Okay. And what made you decide to write a book of this nature? Why look into Nazi influence in America? Yeah, what really precipitated this book was the fact that no one else had written it. Um, there was, as I was researching some of my previous work on the far right in, in Britain and Europe during the 1930s, I realized that there was really no comprehensive history of what had gone on in the United States. And that was an intriguing realization because it's, this is an important topic, as I think I demonstrate in the book, and it wasn't really clear to me why this book hadn't been written. And so once I began digging into the research, I discovered just how rich this history is and how many really untapped sources there were. Uh, in some senses, this is a book that couldn't have been written even a few years ago because of the increase in materials available through the internet, uh, particularly digitized newspaper archives, um, but also just the availability of, of finding finding aids and finding where material is actually located. So I think in some senses, this is a book that couldn't have been done previously. Uh, but it is an important topic, and I think it's a topic that, that certainly deserves more attention than it's historically gotten. Yeah, when I when I first saw it on the bookshelf, um, you know, you have this really striking uh, cover of a, a rally um, that occurred in the United States, and you see an American flag right by a uh, Nazi flag. 
and uh, it had just immediately popped. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I, I never considered that there was a pro-Nazi movement in the United States. And you certainly were not alone. I think the vast majority of Americans now don't know just how how extensive support for Nazism was in this country, and that was really the impetus for the book. You're absolutely right. The cover image is provocative, and what's intriguing about it is that it's, of course, provocative because that organization that's pictured wanted it to be. They're the ones who put the American flag next to the swastika in this deliberate attempt to combine the symbols of National Socialism in Germany with the symbols of Americanism. And that's really a theme that comes out throughout the book, is this this notion that these groups were trying to really convince Americans that not only was, was Nazism not a foreign or dangerous idea or ideology, but that it was something that was completely consistent with American ideals. And that, in some ways, is the most disturbing finding I made in the book. Okay, well, those words, um, Nazi and fascism, uh, today uh, they have a certain connotation, um, and a, a lot of that is well-deserved historically, you know, in the aftermath of, of World War II. But if we were alive in the 1930s, what would it mean to be a Nazi supporter? Well, any number of things. The, the critical thing to remember is that Nazism in this period was not seen as necessarily widely discredited yet. There were a large number of people that saw what Hitler and Mussolini were doing in Europe as, a, as not only not negative, but as a potentially positive bulwark against communism, which they saw as the real threat. And this is something we've almost forgotten today, was that fascism was seen as not only potentially legitimate, but as a, a way of combating the, the threat of Stalinism, uh, which many Americans, as I point out in the book, saw as the much greater threat. Um, and so certainly being a, a Nazi supporter in this period would have, would have had entailed taking a very strong anti-Semitic line, supporting Hitler's government, of course. Um, but also there was this aspect of, of believing, again, that this was an ideology that could be imported into the United States and still... In, in some way, hold lessons for Americans in that sense. And so that's partially why these ideologies, I think, were so appealing to the people I talk about in the book, is this idea that um, this is something that could be used to combat, combat the spread of communism. So you have kind of this uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend type mentality. Certainly. And you also have some, some sort of very strange groups I talk about in the book, um, people who see Hitler as a Christian leader, as somebody who's defending the German church from, from communism and from, um, from what Stalin is doing in Russia. Um, you also have Americans, and this is probably the largest group, that, that simply oppose the U.S. being involved in Hitler's war in Europe after 1939. And, of course, many of them are isolationists. I talk a lot about isolationists in Congress. Um, but many of them are, are Americans who, who quite genuinely feel that the U.S. just doesn't have a stake in this war, that it's a conflict that America should not sacrifice blood or treasure to fight. Um, and, of course, the largest group that I'm sure we'll be talking about today is, is the America First Committee, which has nearly a million members nationwide, uh, including some very famous celebrities and politicians involved in it. So, so there is this, this range of views, really, and I argue in the book that, in some senses, they're all Hitler's American friends, because even if, you, even if, it, if it's one genuinely opposed the U.S. entering the war, that was entirely consistent with, with German geopolitical interests in that period. And so um, I think there really is a gamut of views here that range from people who are, who are very pro-Nazi to people who are simply very anti-war isolationists in this context. But I think it's still important to realize that all of those views serve German interests. It was definitely a complicated uh, environment in the 1930s. So um, as we watched Nazism... Um, come on the rise. We saw the, the ascendancy of Hitler in Germany. How was that news received in the United States, particularly among the very large German-American population here? 
Yeah, and this is something that's incredib incredibly important to realize is the U.S. had a large German population in this period, in this period, but also a large number of people who were very recent immigrants from Germany. Now, these were people who had oftentimes fought in the First World War on the German side. Um, many of them had had or lost relatives, certainly, and they moved to this country in, in the 1920s when Germany was in dire economic straits. Um, but what's important about that is that many of them then imported their political views from, from Germany. So if we think back to German history, um, in the early 1920s, Hitler actually tries to take power in what's called the Beer Hall Putsch. And this ends up with him, with a number of, of Nazis being killed by the, um, by the German army, and then Hitler himself ending up in prison for, for treason, actually. So after that event, a number of his supporters actually fled to the United States, including the man Fritz Kuhn, who would become the head of the German-American boon, we think. Um, and so, so it's what's really going on here is that we have a, a population coming in from Germany that not only has great affinity for, for the fatherland, but also has imported the, the German political landscape into the United States. And many of these people will then look at Hitler as a potential savior, as the guy who's making Germany a great power again, or someone they've supported for quite a long time already, and maybe even shed blood for. Um, and so when, when Hitler comes to power, many of these people who will become his supporters in the U.S. see this as, as a great event, obviously. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, Germany under Hitler makes a remarkable economic turnaround in a period when America and the rest of the world is still really mired in the Great Depression. So by 1936, just three years after he takes power, Hitler announces that unemployment in Germany has disappeared. It's, it's a 0% unemployment situation. And this is when the U.S. is still struggling with an unemployment rate above 10%. So you can imagine how, how that news is received. Now, we know that the reason that that is possible is because Germany has reinstituted conscription. Uh, Hitler has embarked on a mass building project, including the Autobahn system. Um, and so it's not as if the German economy is actually thriving in the way that, that most Americans would, would recognize or support. But it does look very good in this period when Roosevelt and other leaders are still having trouble that Germany has supposedly made this great economic turnaround. And so, so a lot of people actually across the political spectrum, this is not just Hitler's other supporters, but there are many Americans who look at this as a remarkable achievement. And like you said, in the middle of the Great Depression, uh, that had to look pretty tempting. Well, it does look tempting, and there's a lot of people who are talking about the idea from both the left and the right, actually, in this period, that, that America needs a dictator, that democracy is just not going to cut it. It's not a system that's really designed to deal with this level of um, social, political, economic instability. And so there are people who are clamoring, in some cases, for Roosevelt to take on those powers. Um, obviously, the extreme right is clamoring for a Hitler-type figure. The left is clamoring for a Stalin. Um, and so this is a period where democracy really is, is almost at the breaking point. Um, and in some ways, it's remarkable that the U.S. did not succumb to some form of dictatorship in this period. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, does win a third and a fourth term, which is unprecedented. Um, but, but the U.S. never really succumbs to the temptation of dictatorship. And that, in some ways, is a remarkable testimony to the resilience of America's political system. And I think we can all be grateful for that today. Absolutely. It's, it's a really critical moment. And, you know, it, I would argue it's probably the time at which the U.S. has come the closest historically to, to actually abandoning its democratic system. And we should indeed be very grateful that didn't happen. So some of these um, German-American citizens, uh, first-generation immigrants, um, they organized and they formed a group uh, you talk about extensively in the book, the German-American Bund. Um, what was that and what was the scope of its work in the United States? 
So the Boone starts out as a cultural heritage organization. It actually is an amalgamation of some groups that had existed previously. Um, and on paper, in theory, this is an organization that simply is supporting German-American heritage. It in involves exchange programs with Germany. Um, but in reality, it's very clear that there's a political undercurrent here. So the, the main leader of the Bund in the 1930s is Fritz Kuhn. He is a German immigrant, um, claims to have actually, by his own account, um, been an early Nazi, what's called an old fighter in the Nazi party. We don't actually know if that's true, but that was his claim. He had also won the Iron Cross in World War I. So this is a guy who possesses a great deal of natural legitimacy in the, in the eyes of many of these people who shared those experiences and saw him as their leader. So Kuhn becomes the leader. He actually travels to the Third Reich, meets Hitler, supposedly gets Hitler's endorsement to build an American version of, of the Nazi party, effectively, um, and comes back and, and begins actually doing this. He organizes chapters across the United States. There's, there's about 60 of them in total. Um, he also does some, some fairly creepy things, like organizing youth camps that are based on the Hitler Youth model in Germany that educate um, the children of members into the tenets of National Socialism and learn, they learn German, improve their German skills. Um, and so this is an organization that becomes very scary for a lot of Americans very quickly. They also um, become violent, and so Boone members become renowned for beating up um, Jewish citizens on subway platforms in New York City, um, extorting shop owners, things of that sort. So there's kind of this sort of criminality, uh, racketeering element as well to their activities. Um, so by 36, 37, this is a group that's attracted the attention of the national press, it's attracted the attention of, of the U.S. government, but there's not much that they can do about it. The FBI looks into their activities and determines that all of this is, is legal under the Constitution. You can't shut someone down for, for saluting Hitler. That's a First Amendment issue, and you can't, even when they start training with weapons, they argue that's their Second Amendment rights. So it really takes a dramatic moment. The Boone finally gets shut down after a, a riot in New York City where they have organized a, a birthday party, as they call it, for George Washington. And this is really a, a Nazi-themed rally. You can find incredible photos and actually video of it online. Um, but in, in his opening or his closing speech, Kuhn declares that if Washington were alive today, he would certainly be a Nazi, and Nazism is an American creed. I mean, outrageous statements. Um, and this wow. precipitates a riot. Yeah, this, the stage is actually rushed by a Jewish hotel worker, Isidore Greenbaum, who's beaten senseless by Kuhn's guards and dragged out by the police. Um, outside, there's about 100,000 protesters, and, and violence ensues. So this becomes, you know, this is a na national, actually international story. The German press picks up on this to claim that Kuhn uh, was somehow the victim of, an, of a Jewish plot, actually. So they try to twist it to their own nefarious devices, too. Um, this then precipitates an investigation of the Boone's activities by New York State, and they discover that Lo and behold, Kuhn has been uh, embezzling money for his personal use from the Boone's coffers. And so he, he gets indicted for fraud um, and embezzlement and ends up sitting out actually all of World War II in, in a jail cell. So it's this, it, the Boone's is an interesting organization because it's, uh, it's, again, it's very public. It's nationally known. Um, many, I mean, almost becomes a household name. People are afraid of it. It has a nation, nationwide presence. But as I argue in the book, in some ways, that makes them the least dangerous of the groups I talk about because it was so obvious what they were up to. And so the Boone has this sort of this almost meteoric rise in the late 1930s and then just crashes down when Kuhn goes to prison. They do appoint other leaders, but um, none of them really have the charisma or the legitimacy that Kuhn seems to. So so it's an, it's an important organization, um, and certainly this sort of weird case in American history where there was openly parading swastikas next to American flags on American streets, just very, very frightening for people. 
in your descriptions there of uh, violence in the streets, it's it's very reminiscent of of what I've read about uh, 1920s Germany or 1920s Italy. Certainly, and that, and that's the model they're operating on, right? I mean, this this is how Mussolini and Hitler have come to power is through this mass provocation and through essentially delegitimizing democracy by showing that it can't control extremism, and that's the approach that a lot of these groups take. Um, another good example that I talk about in the book is a group called the Silver Legion, which actually arms its followers and tells them to prepare for sort of racial warfare. Um, and again, this is all a deliberate challenge to the legitimacy of um, democratic government and whether democracy can actually fight off these types of challenges. So what can you tell us about one individual, um, a guy named Helmut Oberwinder? I, I found him kind of amusing in the book. Helmut Oberwinder is really one of the heroes of this book. Uh, so Oberwinder himself meets that or matches that profile I mentioned earlier. He's a German immigrant, and when he arrives in the United States, he changes his name to John C. Metcalf to try to make himself Americanized effectively. Um, Oberwinder slash Metcalf then becomes um, a reporter for the Chicago Times. He's, his brother is also an investigative reporter. Um, it appears he also had some connection with the FBI, was at least an FBI informant, um, if not on, on the FBI payroll to a more extreme degree. Um, but Oberwinder decides that the German-American Bund is a real threat to American national security, and so he infiltrates it, um, really at the highest levels. And this now shows that the Bund has some serious operational security issues. Oberwinder simply joins the organization and quickly rises because he has the time on his hands to sort of attend the meetings. And so Kuhn makes him his, his right-hand deputy, actually, and... Um, then sends Oberwinder on this tour of the entire country to um, talk to other Boond members and figure out what's going on. What the, the unfortunate thing for Kuhn here is that, is that we know that Oberwinder is a spy, and so throughout this he's sending dispatches to his brother in preparation for a major newspaper expose he's going to run. So that comes out in 1937, and then that, that really begins to precipitate more concern about what the Boond is up to, um, and, and Oberwinder becomes sort of an, a national figure in that sense. So a really important, inter, inter, very interesting and entertaining, as you say, figure, but somebody who really put himself in a great deal of danger. We know at one point um, Oberwinder's car was actually riddled by machine gun bullets in an attempted assassination. So a guy who really put life and limb on the line to expose this incredibly important story. Okay, so you mentioned um, about running newspaper exposés. Um, what, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the media. Um, how did um, mass media, and uh, in particularly religious mass media, uh, help the spread of anti-Semitism in the 1930s? Um, you, you dedicate a whole chapter to uh, a man named Father, um, is it Coughlin or Coughlin? I, I've heard it both ways. I've heard it both ways, too, yeah. I, either one, I think, works. Okay. <laughs> so Coughlin is, is the most famous radio host of all time. And that sounds like an astounding thing to say in, in 2019, but this is a guy who enjoyed an audience much larger than Rush Limbaugh in his heyday, and he's the, really the only radio host that's ever come close. But Coughlin had a, an audience of about 29 million people, we think, on a weekly basis, which was just absolutely astonishing in a country that was about half the size of what it is today. Wow. Um, and Coughlin starts out as a, as a strong supporter of Franklin Roosevelt. He um, believes that Roosevelt is the man, again, in, in sort of this messianic, you know, America needs a dictator type sense. He thinks Roosevelt's the guy to really um, provide the economic reforms that he that are needed. Um, but the interesting thing about Coughlin is that he is, of course, a Catholic priest. And so there's this religious element mixed in. He's both an entertainer 
and he is has this very important religious role simultaneously. And he he broadcasts from Royal Oak, Michigan, where his where his shrine uh, is, actually is. Um, and by the mid 1930s, Coughlin sort of decides that Roosevelt's not doing enough. He's not um, making the reforms that that Coughlin and his followers believe are necessary to to end the Great Depression, which look a lot like what Hitler is doing in Germany, as it turns out. And so he turns radically against the president. Now, there's a there's a really sinister part of this, too, because Coughlin attributes the failure of these plans to to bankers. Now, bankers is, of course, a, a code word for Jewish bankers in this period. And so Coughlin begins denouncing the bankers, and then it becomes openly the Jewish bankers, and then it becomes sort of Jews in general. And so by 1937-38, Coughlin is giving these these really widely consumed, very uh, you know, widely discussed um, radio talks on every Sunday, denouncing Roosevelt as being in the pocket of Jewish bankers, and then trying, essentially arguing that what the Germans are doing is is fine, that it's a nat- even the anti-Semitic aspects are a natural reaction to these Jewish bankers conspiracy that Coughlin sees everywhere. Um, and so he's a really dangerous figure, I think. I mean, this is a guy who enjoys a massive audience um, and the polling I cite in the book shows that most of his audience agrees with what he's saying, uh, at least to some extent. Um, and so this is a guy who, who really is, is operating, I think, on, on what I would call a, a proto-Nazi basis. He's not necessarily openly pro-Hitler, although he occasionally gets close to that, but he's certainly softening up American public opinion towards fascism and Nazism. And you know, if you want to take a counterfactual scenario in the event that that the U.S. had succumbed to some form of dictatorship, or even been invaded potentially by the Nazis at some point, um, Coughlin would have been one of the key figures in that apparatus. He would have been this incredible opinion leader that would have been very sympathetic to to a national socialist-style regime in the U.S. And so, um, on the political side, he actually founds his own political party in, in 1936, trying to um, trying to basically defeat Roosevelt in that election. That really goes nowhere. Um, but Coughlin always has these sort of political ambitions. Uh, he himself, interestingly, cannot be president because he was born in Canada. So he is, he is himself sort of not eligible to run constitutionally, but does try to find candidates that are friendly to his platform that are eligible. And, and it just never really materializes for him. Um, he never really gets, gets that political cachet. But certainly as a cultural figure and as a religious figure, Coughlin is incredibly important. Um, to fast forward to the end of the story, the Catholic Church essentially decides that they've had enough of him at some point. And so the Catholic hierarchy orders him to stop giving these radio speeches, and there's not really much that he can do. Um, oddly, though, as I talk about in, in the final part of the book, Coughlin becomes wealthy off of this. So um, he's not a member of a, of a religious order in the church that demands poverty. And so he actually acquires a huge fortune for himself and ends up uh, living a very posh retirement, partially in Arizona and partially in in Michigan, where he lives down the street, actually, from um, from Governor George Romney, apparently, their next-door neighbors. So, very sort of odd figure. Again, somebody who in the 1930s was, was certainly a household name. Everyone would have known who Father Coughlin was, um, and somebody who really had these these deeply troubling views. Yeah, that, that chapter was, was maybe the most striking for me, um, because we think of anti-Semitism today, because it exists today. We we know it does, and but, but it's kind of a fringe thing. Um, but Father Coughlin, it sounds, was about as mainstream as as it could get. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a guy who certainly is seen as as certainly a mainstream political as a mainstream media figure, I should say. I mean, he's he and, and that's a great point. I mean, one one thing that's critical to remember is that anti-Semitism was extremely widespread in the United States in this period, and I, I show 
went through a lot of polling data actually from from Gallup and Fortune polling in this era that the majority of Americans held views that today we would consider anti-Semitic, and some even held views that were we would consider pretty extreme. So there's there's a poll that I cite showing that a a certain number of Americans, I think it's about 20 million Americans in this period, believe that Jews should be asked to leave the country. They should just be kicked out, and they say humanely, but of course, how do you really expel a portion of your population humanely, as, as is going on in Europe in this period, in very inhumane circumstances? So, so anti-Semitism is just really widespread, and, and certainly today we do think of it as being fringe, um, but in this period, this was a form of prejudice that, that probably most Americans held to at least some extent, and that's what's really, in some ways, frightening about this era. You know, um, it... It kind of saddens me to, to share this story, but, but while I was reading your book, uh, actually, um, in the, the Facebook group for my neighborhood, we have one of those um, little library things. It's like a little birdhouse, and people put books in them, and neighborhood kids can pick them up. Um, on our Facebook group, somebody showed that uh, somebody had stuffed the neighborhood little library with all this anti-Semitic literature, that the, the Jews are running a child pornography ring, and uh, I, I was just struck by that, that while I was reading, you know, this exact book, that, you know, this stuff is still alive and well. Well, it's still alive and well, and certainly in the era of the Internet, this stuff is spreading incredibly quickly. You know, it, for an example of that, we just need to look at the terrible events of the, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting from a few months ago now. But, um, I mean, this is an ind- the suspect in this case, we think, essentially self-radicalized on the Internet, on sort of the darker corners. And so... The kind of thing you're talking about, unfortunately, does go on all the time. Um, you know, here in California, where I live, we had a, a hate crime incident in our local synagogue where um, part of the sign was ripped off. Um, and, you know, this this seems like stuff that, that is sort of, you know, minor or should be overlooked. But, you know, I think it's really important to confront this stuff. And even the type of incident that you're describing should be not only really troubling to us, but should precipitate, I think, a lot of reflection about why this stuff persists. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. All right, so so moving on uh, further in your book, um, I guess let's lay a little context for those who aren't familiar. Um, who was Charles Lindbergh, and then you know how did he lend his celebrity to the Nazi cause? Yeah, Charles Lindbergh is is, and this is not an exaggeration. He's the most famous man in the world in this period. So Charles Lindbergh in 1927 sort of leaps into the international consciousness with his daring flight across the Atlantic Ocean, and this is this is the first man to fly solo, we should say, across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I mean, this is an event that it's it's very easy for us to overlook today because we live in an era of mass air travel where we can all do that. Um, but no one had ever done this before. People actually thought it was impossible. And so Charles Lindbergh, very literally overnight, becomes this sort of godlike mythological figure. Um, so he comes back from Paris after making that flight, becomes, we think, the most photographed man in the world, which is quite, quite the feat. Um, and then a few years later, in 1932, his son, Charles Lindbergh Jr., is, is quite tragically kidnapped and killed from his house in New Jersey. And so that not only sort of cements Lindbergh in the public consciousness on an ongoing basis, but there's a huge outpouring of support. Um, the ensuing trial of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping is quite literally the trial of the century. Um, many people right, believe right. it's the biggest trial ever in American history, right? So Lindbergh then um, goes off to Europe in the aftermath of that. Um, and while he's living in England, actually receives a letter one day from a guy named Truman Smith, who is the American military attache at the Berlin Embassy. And Smith wants Lindbergh to go there to tour German aircraft production facilities and make reports to the U.S. government about what the Germans are doing in that important sphere. 
So Lindbergh does this, and it becomes very clear from reading his journals, which I look at in the book, that that Lindbergh is very favorably impressed not only with the aircraft industry, but with, with Nazi Germany more widely. Um, and his, he already holds some views that I think that we can fairly classify as anti-Semitic, but being in Nazi Germany, it appears, really cements those views. And he starts to, in some ways, embrace this idea that Nazism is, again, a bulwark against Jewish communism of some sort. So Lindbergh makes a few trips to Germany. At, at one point, he actually is given a medal by Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe that Hitler has, has given him in recognition of his services to aviation. And this becomes a huge story in the U.S. because people are now sort of becoming aware that, that their great national hero perhaps has these sort of pro-Nazi views. So Lindbergh then quite wisely comes back to the U.S. to try to repair the damage to his reputation. Um, but then when the war breaks out, he has to make this decision of, am I, am I going to... Um, support the war effort. He's a he's an Army Air Corps officer at this point. Or am I going to speak out against it? Because he very genuinely does think that Nazism does not necessarily pose a threat to the United States. The U.S. can stay out of the war and sit out behind this huge, you know, air defense barrier that he wants to build and things like that. So Lindbergh, rather than remaining silent and supporting the war effort, starts giving speeches on radio denouncing Roosevelt and denouncing the idea that the U.S. would get into the war. And this again, I think, is something that we we can't really overstate its importance, because this is a guy who, who many people um, viewed as a hero, who many people respected. There were streets named after him, many of which get renamed. Um, and, and so Lindbergh now has taken this incredibly controversial stance. And of course, that stance is shown to be deeply flawed uh, when Pearl Harbor happens. But from about 1940 to 41, Lindbergh is traveling the country under the auspices of the America First Committee, which is this anti-intervention, almost isolationist group. Um, and, and this does major damage to his reputation, but it also does major damage to U.S. foreign policy in this period. And, you know, one example that I, I like to give is that if, if we imagine people like Lindbergh not taking this isolationist stance, it certainly would have been more possible for Roosevelt and his administration to be harsher on the Nazis, to say, to tell Hitler even potentially, you need to get out of Poland within 24 hours or we're going to declare war. And that's something we know that Hitler very much feared. So, so Lindbergh does this real damage, and I argue that he's one of Hitler's most important American friends, not because of his pro-Hitler views necessarily, but because he really hamstrings the U.S. government's potential response to what's going on in Europe. Um, and, and what's interesting, you know, is, is that after Pearl Harbor, um, I cite polling data that shows that Lindbergh's reputation just absolutely tanks. He has like an 11% approval rating after Pearl Harbor happens. Um, fast forward you know, seven or eight decades when Lindbergh has died and his reputation has in some ways recovered because the history books don't talk about the stuff that happened in 4041. They only talk about the 1927 flight. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, to, to sort of imagine, um, you know, not only Lindbergh's importance, but how he himself has sort of undergone this, this kind of amazing revitalization. I think it's important for people to realize that, um, you know, that this was, this was a figure who was not only very famous and important, but also multifaceted. And we need to sort of um, rem keep, keep that in mind, certainly, when he's concerned. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on the America First Committee and, and what influence they had and how the nation reacted to them? Sure. Yeah, the America First Committee gets founded uh, right around the time of the 1940 election. This is the election where, again, Roosevelt is running for his unprecedented third term. Um, it's actually founded at Yale Law School, so it's founded by some, some young, young Republican students there who who really want to argue, essentially, that the U.S. should stay out of the war, that the, the war in Europe is not an American concern, that the U.S. should invest in defense rather than offense, and that Roosevelt's policies were going to drag the U.S. into the conflict. So 
Um, it originates at Yale Law School. Lindbergh then gets brought on board. Um, as I point out in the book, there's a great deal of sort of corporate support for this movement. So Quaker Oats is actually involved. Um, and there's just really a, a wide range of corporate leaders that, that get involved in this sort of movement. So um, America First caps out at, we think, around 800,000 members nationwide. Again, this is an astonishingly large number for, for this period of time, for any sort of political organization. But uh, what I think, again, what's interesting is that um, this is a group that, that commanded nationwide support. It had um, national radio presence. I mean, they would broadcast their speeches live. Um, and in some ways, it becomes the unofficial opposition in an era when um, Roosevelt has won his third term in office and the Republicans are you know, kind of in disarray. Um, America First is, is bipartisan as well, we should point out. There are actually a great deal of Democrats um, who are, are part of it as well. So um, it, it's this really intriguing and in some ways um, concerning movement, this idea that the U.S. should simply remove itself from the world, it should uh, retreat from world interference, and of course we see again that that's a, a really bad idea when Pearl Harbor happens. But I think in some ways it, what America First is doing is tapping into America's political psyche. Isolationism has, has very deep roots in American history, um, goes back to the Founding Fathers, and America First really in this period becomes the um, political manifestation of, of that impulse. All of the all this activity, uh, the America First Committee, um, the um, radio addresses of Father Coughlin, the the German American Bund. Um, how is all this being um, perceived by the actual Nazi Party over in Germany? This is a really great question. So the Nazis don't really know what to make of all this. Oddly, um, <laughs> the German American Bund again they they're reluctant to embrace Kuhn too closely because they think he's incompetent. And whether or not they have a sense that he is as corrupt as he turns out to be, it's it's sort of unclear. But but they don't really trust this guy. And they think the the real fear that the Nazis have is that Kuhn is going to get the U.S. involved in the war. I mean, certainly if he had ever attempted to actually overthrow the U.S. government. This is the this is the perfect. I mean, this is an international incident, right? If if you're trying to overthrow someone else's government, so right. so the Nazis are very skeptical. And what's interesting is they they distance themselves from Kuhn, except when he's useful to them. Coughlin, they actually, I mean, they're very aware of Coughlin. Coughlin, as I point out in the book, becomes almost a household name in Germany because they reprint his speeches and his radio talks in the Nazi press. Um, but the Nazis are reluctant to support him. They're reluctant to to give him funding or support because they think he's more effective if left on his own. And so the, the Germans have a really interesting um, geopolitical sense about what to do about these guys. I, I really couldn't find much evidence that they tried to directly support any of them except in the case of America First. When America First comes along, it's very clear that the Nazis see this as the best chance of keeping the U.S. out of the war. Um, they, they use their agents of influence to try to support America First. It, it, there's some suggestion that they may have tried to funnel the money as well. We don't know whether that actually happened. Um, but but the short answer is, I mean, they view these guys skeptically because they think that they're they're Hitler emulators. They're not nearly going to have the the charisma or the potential that that Hitler did as a leader, and so they they simply try to distance themselves. Um, and I, I actually cite some very funny quotes about that in the book, where the Nazis, even to each other, are saying, "We these people are crazy. We can't really trust them." <laughs> Uh, yeah, you you profile a, a couple of, uh, I guess, wannabe Hitlers on, on the American side that were, um, you know, disturbing, but, uh, you know, fortunately they, they didn't have his uh, political savvy and, and charisma. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is, you know, there, there's this element of theatrical, there's a theatrical aspect to it, we should say, right? I mean, so the Nazis think these guys are playing dress-up to some extent, and, and to that extent they are probably right. These guys are not really furors in the making, they're just kind of 
trying to be like the Fuhrer. <laughs> there is an area, though, where the Nazis were heavily directly involved, and, uh, and, and this surprised me in reading it, but that's actually in Washington, D.C., um, the Nazis were running a, a propaganda operation that worked within the halls of Congress itself. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is a remarkable moment in American history, and I'm, I'm frankly not sure why this episode isn't more widely known and discussed, because it is incredibly troubling. But in the, in the mid-1930s, there is a German agent on Capitol Hill named George Sylvester Virek. Uh, and Virek is a propagandist who had worked for the German cause in World War I, um, is highly impressed by Hitler, goes off in the 1930s and meets him, and then essentially sets up a plot with the German foreign ministry to funnel money through the German embassy into his operation in Washington. And this operation involves actually writing speeches for American members of Congress. So there's initially three or four senators that, that take advantage of Virek's services, um, one of whom is Ernest Lundin, senator from Minnesota who dies in a plane crash in 1940, actually very dramatically. Um, but Virek begins pub uh, writing these speeches for American congressmen, and, and obviously these are a combination of anti-intervention rhetoric and interspersed with, with outright Nazi propaganda. So he's writing the speeches to begin with, and then re this is the really genius part of his plot, realizes that he can get these speeches printed at very low cost in the congressional record. So in the congressional record is, is Congress's official transcript, effectively, and members... Um, at that time and, and now can order reprints at very low cost to send to their constituents to let them know what's going on and what their views are on things. Franking so privilege. Are, yeah, well, franking privilege is the mailing out, right? So franking would be actually the, the envelope that has a, a frank, a stamp on it. Um, so Virek figures out that he can use the franking, the, the free postage that Congress has, and these very cheap reprints to distribute mass numbers of, of pamphlets to people. And so he starts having his, his friends, his members of Congress, insert speeches into the congressional record, sometimes without even speaking them, right? They just go into the appendix. Um, and then he orders huge numbers of them to be printed, sends them out for free using congressional franking privilege, and uses the mailing lists of various isolationist organizations to target Americans. And so we have this incredibly disturbing situation where we have a German agent who has members of Congress inserting things into the congressional record, ordering them and sending them out to Americans. And you can imagine what this would be like. You receive a officially postmarked member of, you know, letter from Congress, which is very impressive. Um, maybe not even your member of Congress. It could just be some random member. And inside is a speech denouncing the Roosevelt administration or denouncing the British. Um, you know, all these things are in line with Nazi propaganda. It, so it lends a certain amount of credibility to this Nazi propaganda. Oh, absolutely. Again, if this is a, these are nationally known members of Congress, you know, you can imagine re you're receiving mail from a U.S. senator. It's very impressive and, and convincing to people. Um, and so Virek then actually extends it further and o opens his own publishing house. He buys a German-American publishing house and actually then um, writes books or ghostwrites books for members of Congress and publishes them himself. Um, and so it's an incredible operation. I mean, and this goes on for years, essentially undetected. Eventually, the British actually get hold of it. Um, and drop it onto the laps of the FBI. But it's just incredibly disturbing. And, and we certainly know that the member, many of the members of Congress involved knew exactly what they were doing. 
Um, it became very clear after the war that, that they were absolutely in, in cahoots with Virac, knew that he was, probably knew that he was operating as a German agent, but certainly knew that what was going on here. Um, interestingly, I mean, with, without spoiling the whole story, um, every member of Congress that was involved with Virac loses their seat. So everyone who was closely involved with this scandal um, ends up getting knocked out either during the war or after the war. And so there are huge electoral consequences. But Virac really infiltrated the U.S. government at, at nearly its highest levels. It's this incredible episode in American history. Uh, if you have a couple, a couple of minutes, uh, we do have one uh, listener question. Absolutely. All right. Well, this comes from one of our Patreon patrons. Uh, Bethany in Ohio writes, What happened to all these pro-Nazi supporters once World War II started? Did they hide that they were ever involved? Were they thrown in jail? What happened to them? This is a really great question. And the short answer is we don't really know in most cases. Um, think about the numbers that we've been talking about here. So, you know, let's put America first to the side. That has about a million members, but maybe not all of them are, are necessarily pro-Nazi. Go back to the German-American boom. This is a group that has 20,000 paid-up members nationally, about 100,000, we think, sympathizers. Some of the other groups I talk about have, have similar numbers. And so even if there's some overlap, we're still talking about a large number of people. You know, not, not half the population, but still pretty large numbers. The short answer is we don't know. Um, many of the leaders of these groups did go to prison during the war. There was actually an um, attempt to indict many of them for sedition which failed because they couldn't show that they were actually committing sedition. And again, this is where you run into First Amendment protections, potentially constitutional protections. Uh, but people like Kuhn do go to prison. Um, some of these other leaders do get involved in, in an extended legal trial, basically. So they're kind of taken out. But we don't know much about what happened to the rank and file members. Um, you know, one thing I've said in, in all of my various interviews I've done about this and what I've sort of said in the book as well to some extent is I would love to hear from someone whose parents were in the German-American boot. And here's the disturbing thing, right? There's also the possibility that those members are still alive. So remember that there were children and youth camps that the German-American Boone ran. We have no idea what happened to the children that were in those camps. Um, and so, you know, I scoured, tried to scour oral histories, tried to find any, any evidence I could about what happened to these people, and, and just really have not been able to find anything. So if any of your listeners have any insights on that, I'd love to hear from them. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I always say is that there's this disturbing aspect of post-war America where it is very, well, it's certainly true that people unwittingly lived next to former German-American Bund members um, and probably never knew it. And, you know, the Bund is a scary group, but there are other scary groups I talk about in the book, too, and these people were certainly around for decades. The only piece of evidence I really could find was I, I did find some uh, federal background check documentation from the 1950s, the early 50s, sort of the McCarthy era. Um, and on the back of it, there's a list of organizations that were a disqualifier um, from passing this background check. And the German-American Bund was actually on that list. So by, so certainly in the 50s, there was still concern about these people. And if you had been a, a Bund member, um, it actually could have excluded you from some from passing background checks uh, for federal employment. So that, that suggests that there was certainly still a worry that these folks were out there. But but again, the short answer is we don't know, and I would love to find out. All right. Well, this, uh, Bradley, was uh, an excellent discussion. Um, the uh, book, Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's uh, Supporters in the United States. Um, where can people go to if they want to pick up a copy of the book or learn more about, uh, learn more about you? Uh, well, I have my website, bradleywhart.com. I also am on Twitter under the handle Dr. B. Hart. 
Um, and the book is available from, from all booksellers nationwide, or should be, and certainly can be ordered uh, if it's not on the shelves. So it should, should be available everywhere. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. If you are interested in checking out Bradley's book, Hitler's American Friends, I've provided a link down in the show's description. If you're new to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and you like what you hear today, give the show a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes become available. If you want to listen to other CMTU episodes, they're available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. And as always, if you would like to get in touch with me, I'd love to hear from you on social media. I'm at facebook.com slash cmtuhistory, on Twitter at cmtuhistory, and on Instagram at cmtuhistory. Alright, that's it from me. I'll see you back here on Tuesday, March 5th for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. And until then, make it a great week.